Well, you've probably been wondering what happened to our study through Ecclesiastes. If you have been here with us, well, I have good news. We haven't totally abandoned the pursuit as vanity or meaningless. If you've been studying along with us, you'll catch my references there. And we've just taken a few break, a few few weeks, um, taking a break for a few weeks, specifically Palm Sunday to look at the, the crucifixion, um, Easter to look at the resurrection, and then our one-year service. So we will be finishing up Ecclesiastes. So let me ask you, if you've got your Bible, or you can grab one in the chair there, go ahead and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. That's on page 557 in the Bibles that we've provided. And this morning we'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Verses 1 through 17, looking at wisdom for living in an unjust world. And so the preacher is the main character throughout Ecclesiastes, and we see him wrestling throughout. And, and he's wrestling with what he knows and what he experiences. And sometimes these two kind of conflict. And so let me ask you a question, because we're all there. We know things about God or things somebody has told us about God and about this world. And we live and we say, but this isn't my experience. You're telling me this is true, but I don't experience this in life. I mean, we're right here with him. So this passage is relevant for you today. But let me ask you this. When is the last time you saw something or read something that made you say, that's not fair? That's not right. When's the last time that happened for you? Now, I've got kids, so I hear that all the time. Dad, that's not fair. But we all long for justice, right? And we see injustices all around us that raise these thoughts within us. Maybe, maybe I mean, lately, if you just watch the news, what would be going on in your minds? Obviously, the Trayvon Martin case, right? There's a bunch of outcry, and I'm not here to state my thoughts or opinion. I don't have a clue, but is that fair? Is that right? These questions that you, you hear the stories. What about the two-year-old girl, Kaylee Ann Harrison from Gloucester, right? Her mom turns away to get a ball on the beach and just for a second, and, and where's her two-year-old? That is not fair. That is not right. Good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. Are you with me? Do you see this in the world that you live in? Do you have these thoughts? What about the Hunger Games? Let me just get a poll real quick. Who has heard about the Hunger Games? Let me just see. A, all right, we've, we've got a pretty good account there. Who has read the Hunger Games? Or at least one of the books. Okay. Who has seen the movie, The Hunger Games? All right. Well, I want you to interact with me. I'm going to, maybe, who's seen the trailer? Hey, I haven't seen the, I haven't read the book. I've just seen the trailer. Some of you are there. Hey, I've just seen the trailer. Hey, that would have been me up until this past Wednesday. I, I have not read the book. I've just watched the movie. But just to bring everybody up to speed, what are the Hunger Games about? Well, there were 13 districts, and now there are 12. The 13th district rebelled against the Capitol, and so what they did is they set up the Hunger Games as a reminder to all the 12 districts that we should never rebel again. So what do they do? Every year, there is a lottery. And all of the districts, one boy and one girl, 
is drawn from each district. And they're sent to the Hunger Games. You've got a total of 24 people. And what they do, they're put together in an outdoor arena that is controlled by the capital. And they're all fighting against each other and only one will survive. Now, how many of you saw the trailer and said, that is not fair? I remember seeing it with my wife for the first time. And for the longest, she refused to go see the movie just because of just, she's not, this isn't right. How can a, a government, a capital, capital do this to 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, kids, and then to watch it as pure entertainment? So I'm not going to ruin the movie or the book for those of you. But the thought there, there is much injustice. I mean, what do we see in the beginning of the trailer? We're focused in on District 12. And it's a little girl named Primrose. Blonde hair, blue eyes, 12 years old. And it shows them pull the lottery ticket out. And it's her name. Now, I'm not ruining this for you because that's in, in the trailer there. I haven't ruined Hey, that's just the beginning. That, that's, that's not ruining it for you. This 12-year-old girl, she is sweet, but she doesn't have a chance. That is not fair. So I'm not going to continue on with the Hunger Games. We can talk later if you like. But I know this. You all experience this every day. We live in an unjust world. Governments abuse authority. Your bosses abuse authority. How should you respond? And so when we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, the author here is going to be giving us wisdom for how to respond in an unjust world. Let's look at verse 1 there. Ecclesiastes verse 8, verse 1. And he begins this way. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Now, I'm starting here because this kind of lays the groundwork for where we're headed. It's about wisdom. Who is, the, who is wise? Who, who knows how to interpret a thing? Who knows how to interpret life? Let's just think about it for a second. What is the use of wisdom? Wisdom teaches us how to act in any given situation. So when we talk about being wise, we're talking about how to know what to do in life. And so what he's getting at here, he says, the person who is wise, it changes his countenance. A wise person, you can tell. It takes the hardness off of his face, and it says his face shines. So I would say this. You can tell a wise person in the same way that you can tell a fool. Because the fool, the stupidity is written all over their face is what he's getting at. And a wise person, you see it. it. It comes off of them. So let me ask you this. Do you have wisdom? Do you know wisdom for living in an unjust world? This is where we're headed. And so as we, as we read through the text, man, this is, I want to give you the central truth where we're headed today. The main point is this, is that you should fear God, the righteous judge, while living in an unjust world. You should fear God, the righteous judge, while living in an unjust world. Now, and basically, we're going to hit up two, 
two, two main points underneath this, and the first one is this. I mean, that we should act wisely in the face of unjust authority. So this will be the first truth. Act wisely in the face of unjust authority. And I'm going to start reading, continuing on in verse 2, on through verse 9 for this first part of the message today. So verse 2, he says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. So first of all, what do we see? This first part is going to be about authority. Specifically, it's going to be about a king, and he's going to be giving you and I wisdom for how to respond and live in light of this king. So keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Verse 3, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from more, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Catch verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Do you see his main concern? He's observing the world he's in and he says, I'm observing that man has power over another man to his hurt. So this clues us here that we're not just learning about any king. It is about an unjust king. Now, what do we learn about the king here? Before we look at wisdom and how to respond, let me just highlight a few things. Verse 4, actually the end of verse 3, says, do not take your stand in an evil cause, for the king does whatever he pleases. What do we learn about the king? The king is the absolute authority here. We continue on verse 4. The word of the king is supreme. Who can challenge him by saying, what are you doing? We get this picture of a king who was accountable to no one but himself. So how do you respond to an unjust king? And you, know, you may be asking, okay, John, man, we don't have kings here. I don't have kings in my life. How is this relevant to me? We all live under authority. So whether you're directly living under a king or not, we all have authority over us. We have bosses, we have rulers, we have government officials that can either do righteous or unrighteous and unjust things. So how do we respond here? I want to give you a few, few wisdom principles here that I believe we can draw from the text. And the first one is this. The way we respond to an unjust authority is that we do it in a God-honoring way. We must honor God. We see this in verse 2. He says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Your translation may also say because of your oath to God. Now, I'll admit, there are a couple of tricky um, interpretations and translations here on verses 2 and 3. Um, and so it's possible that he could be referring to the king's oath to God, but it's also possible that it could be referring to your oath to God to serve and honor God. The king. Either way, I believe the principle is here that God is our ultimate 
authority. He's giving us the reason. Why should you keep the king's command? It's because of God. Whether it's his commitment to God or your commitment to God, God is the ultimate king. I mean, think about it. He is the king of all kings. Now, whether the the text says it or not, I know he's highlighting and building up this king who is supreme and who can challenge him. The only way that this king rules is that the king of kings, God, allows him to rule. Look at Proverbs 8 here. I've got it for us. Proverbs 8 says, By me kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. God is the one who governs all kings. So why and how should you respond to authority? I mean, the first principle is this. You should know that God is to be the king of kings in your life. Now, this gets kind of tricky for us sometimes, right? Because what happens if you live underneath a king that is doing unjust things and not honoring the king of kings? So I'll just tell you this. We should keep the king's command in a God-honoring way, but knowing this. That if the two conflict, who wins out? God does. He is the king of kings. Now, so far, living in the U.S., man, we have religious freedom. And for most of us, we're not making choices between God or the government. But there may come a day that you will have to make a decision whether to obey the king of kings or the government or authorities. And he should be the king of kings in your life. We see this in nations that we pray for China and we reflect on what it's like to live underneath an authority that is contrary to the king of kings and decisions. You, you need much wisdom there. Man, how do, you, how do you live? How do you go about life in an authority that is doing unjust things contrary to the one who rules them all? And so God should have our utmost honor and authority. The second one thing that I think that the text highlights is that not only should we honor God, but we should consider the consequences. Look back here with me in verse 3. This is, verse 3 is a tough text. Um, Let me just read what the ESV says. The ESV says, Be not hasty to go from His presence. It seems here that He's saying, Hey, don't, don't, don't run away from the King's presence. But as I've studied this, it seems like there are another possible translation is that you should leave his presence. And I'm not going to go into all the exegetical details here. Um, and I don't want this to trip us up because I think the truth, we can see what's going on. Let me finish reading three and we'll see. He says, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. I think you get the point. If the king is supreme and you have a differing opinion, well, you either leave his presence or you consider the consequences. Do you see what he's, what he's getting at here? Now, when it says here in verse 3, do not take your stand in an evil cause, he's not necessarily talking about evil as right or wrong. It may simply just be a bad idea. Do not take your stand against an idea. So basically saying, hey, if you've gone before the king, you've gone before an authority, a ruler in your life, and you've stated your concern 
and your opinion, and the ruler, the authority says no, well, what do you do? He's saying, you consider the consequences. And this becomes clear as we continued reading. Verse 4, the word of the king is supreme. Verse 5, whoever keeps a king's command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. What he's saying, he said, hey, if you obey the king, it's going to go well with you. You will know no evil thing. But if you choose to rebel or disobey the king, just know this, you may incur bad consequences. So what do we do? We're not actually given a ton of answers here. I mean, if we were to just draw the conclusion from Ecclesiastes 8, it would seem to be the solution is you just comply with the king and keep quiet, and it will be well with you. And he's basically looking at an earthly perspective. Hey, if you want to live, you want it to go well with you, don't challenge the king. So consider the consequences. So just kind of making this practical. I think we are faced with these type of dilemmas and situations all throughout life. And I, you've heard the statement, choose the hill in which you want to die. I think there's even a lot of wisdom there. There are some things and those who are in authority over you that you just need to learn to comply and say, you know what? It's not worth it. It's not worth, I'm, I'm not going to die on this hill. But I will raise this. I believe there are certain hills that we ought to stake our lives on and that we need wisdom and how to respond in those situations. So honor God. I mean, consider the consequences. Are they worth it? Is this really worth the consequences? And then thirdly, act appropriately. Look at verse 6. In verse 6 he says, there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Here's what he's saying. There is a time, a right way, and a right time to go about and engage the king. Let me even give you this wisdom principle from Proverbs. Look here. Proverbs 25, 15. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Okay, why am I highlighting that? Well, I believe there's a, a right way and a right time to go about it. So you've got an authority, an unjust situation in your life, and you're praying and asking God for wisdom. Let me give you a wisdom principle here. You need to know not just what to say, but when to say it and how to say it. You see, when you engage people in specifically unjust situations, it's not about just knowing what you want to communicate. You've got to communicate it in the right way and in the right time. And that's, what the, that's the wisdom that the preacher has given us here. Man, it may not be the right time. And maybe you need to be patient. And what about this? Maybe you need to think about not just the right time, but the best way to engage and to communicate it. Now, look here at verse 6, because this is where we see the struggle with the preacher. He says, there is a right time and a right way. But what does he say in verse 7? 
for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be. So he's saying there is a right time, but in the very next verse he says, but who knows what's going to happen in the future? There is a time, but if there is, who, no, I can't know when it's going to be. So you see this struggle between there's a right time, there's a right way, but look at my inability, I don't know. Which is the struggle we see throughout Ecclesiastes where he knows certain things, but yet his experience kind of alludes to the other. Not only does he not know, look, he continues on with his inability. Look at verse eight. He says, not only do I not know what it will be or who will tell me, he says, I don't have power to, to retain the wind. Some of your translations may say spirit. Spirit, wind, it's the same word here. The spirit, the wind. I don't have the power over death. I don't determine when I die, I don't have power to be discharged from war, and I don't have power over wickedness. Wicked, it says wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. I mean, is this encouraging? So he's giving you this wisdom, and he says, hey, by the way, man, I'm looking, and like, I'm, I am unable in so many ways, which leads him to conclude in verse 9, all of this I've seen. And he says, man, when man had power over man to his hurt. And you see the vanity, the frustration coming out of the preacher here. Now, before we move on, let me just raise an issue. What about tyranny and oppression? Isn't that what we're all thinking about right now? I mean, we're thinking about a government or an authority who, who doesn't listen to the injustices that are going on all around him. How does a Christian respond? Obviously, tyranny and oppression is not good. Absolute authority corrupts absolutely. If I just comply, what about all of those who are suffering, who are being oppressed? And I'll say this, tyranny is a very serious political problem and it needs to be resisted but you'll see Christians disagreeing over man what this resistance should look like we need much wisdom here when we see tyranny and oppression and I would say this we should seek change but the next part of the passage is going to help us as a reminder that God is the ultimate judge I mean, what, what about oppression and justice gets us? It's like, man, will this person ever be held accountable for what they're doing? And the answer the preacher is going to tell us in verses 10 through 17 is yes. God is the righteous judge. And in the end, everything will be made right. So I don't have all the answers here about tyranny and oppression. And we need much wisdom as we engage in helping people. Um, but we need to do it in a God-honoring way and making much of Him as we move forward in that. So there's, there's some thoughts from the preacher on wisdom in an unjust world. Now I want us to move on to verses 10 through 17 um, and looking at wisdom for engaging and responding to much of the injustice that we see around us. So I'm going to start reading in verse 10 of chapter 8. 
He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Traditional wisdom teaches us that there is a time and a place for judgment. But the preacher's experience contradicts this. He's got a dilemma here. He's looking at the world, and he looks at the wicked, and he's saying the wicked are not punished. In fact, they even seem to prosper. Hey, do you, you see anybody around you that would be true of this? Does this get you? Man, that should not happen to this person. They're wicked. They ought to be getting punishment, and yet all these good things are happening. And what about me? I'm doing the right thing, and yet, man, all these negative and bad things keep happening to me. This is his dilemma. So the first dilemma I want us to point is this. The wicked escape judgment. That's the first dilemma that he's thinking through. So going back to verse 10, he says, I saw the wicked buried. So he's, he's at the funeral of a wicked of the wicked people, of sinners, and they're in the grave. And he says, these are people that used to go in and out of the holy place. The holy place probably here referring to the temple. These used to be the very same people that came into the temple. But yet he, what he's describing here are hypocrites. These are people that were in the temple, they frequent it, but it did not change their life. They may have come, they may have sang great songs, but when they left the temple, the holy place, they were doing many evil and wicked themes. And, it, and he's thinking, in his mind, these people are ripe for judgment. They are wicked. But what does he say here? In the ESV it says, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city. You may see a footnote there, um, the number four. And if you look at the bottom there, you'll see the word forgotten. And actually, the word forgotten is in most of the manuscripts not the word praise. And, and I actually think the word forgotten is a better translation here. Why? He's looking at the wicked who are buried, they're put in the grave, and they're forgotten. Why does that disturb him? Well, here's why. They're never punished. They, in his eyes, they escape judgment. They lived, they prospered, they died, and they have been forgotten. Not only that, what does he say in the next verse? He says, Because the sentence against evil is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Why is this so troubling? This is so troubling to him because he says, Hey, if the wicked are not judged speedily, what's that going to foster? More evil. I mean, let's just think about it. If they're were no 
consequences in this city. Would you drive the speed limit? Would you stop at a stop sign? We could talk about many of the... We're motivated by what? Judgment. All the time. No, I'm not going to do that because if I do that, there are certain consequences. You run a red light, you run a stop sign. Now, you may not get caught, but you may. But if we took all the rules out of our country, what would it be? I mean, there would probably be rampant evil. And this is what he's getting at. If there's not a judgment that's executed speedily, people say, oh, there's no consequences for that? I'm going to continue on in it. Do you know what sin does? Let's just reflect here for a second. The great lie of sin is that it tempts you and it lures you to thinking that you can enjoy the benefits without the consequences. You name the sin. Every single one of them. Enjoy the pleasure. Enjoy the delight. Enjoy all these benefits. No consequences. And you know what? It's also going to say, look at all these other people around you that are doing the same thing and, and they're prospering. Do you face this same dilemma? The wicked escape judgment. The second dilemma is not only that they escape judgment, but that they prosper. Look down at 12. Though a sinner does, a, does evil a hundred times, what does he do? He prolongs his life. This isn't a new thing. We could go back to chapter 7, and this is already introduced to it, um, introduced to us. What does prolonging a life have to do here? Well, look at a few of the Proverbs here. In Proverbs, um, Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2, I want you to see what it says here. It says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Keep my commandments and you'll live a long life. The next one here in Proverbs 3.16, it says, speaking of wisdom, long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. So the preacher here knows wisdom and knows that obedience to God would promise you live a long life, but it is experience of saying, hey, the wicked are doing evil things and yet they're living long lives. This isn't fair. No one gets what they deserve. The righteous don't get rewarded. They get punished. The wicked do not get punished. They get reward. And that leads him to say, look, flip on down to verse 14. In verse 14, he says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this is vanity. And you just see him throwing his hands up. The word vanity continues. Man, this is meaningless. It is vanity. How do you explain this dilemma? Well, before we get to our solution, let me just highlight this. And as we turn to the gospel, you know what the greatest injustice ever known to man is? We could read verse 14 here and put Jesus' name in there. You see that? There are righteous people. There's Jesus to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. 
Jesus is the only person that has ever lived a perfect life. And yet, what does he get? He gets according to the deeds of the wicked. He is crucified with two thieves. He is the one that deserves long life. And yet, he is killed. Now, that is great injustice, but we know from the Bible that, yeah, it was injustice, but this was the plan of God. This is the story from the very beginning is that the only way that we, the wicked, could get and receive the benefits of the righteous is if he steps in our place. That is the greatest injustice. I mean, that. Do you look at the cross and say, that is not fair? Because that's what it is. Our solution we see the solution here in the latter part of verse 12 where he begins and he says, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days. You even see his wrestling here, right? He's just said the wicked do evil and they prolong their days. Now in verse 13 he says, but no, they're not going to prolong their days. So which one is it, preacher? Is it, are they going to prolong it or not? Well, he's looking now big picture. And he's, the solution is this. Fear God, the righteous judge. He knows this. This is what he knows, and he's wrestling with his experience. Let me just tell you guys this, and everybody listen up. Judgment will not be delayed. Even though you may look at this world, and you may see the wicked prospering, the truth of Scripture tells us is that judgment will not be indefinitely delayed. I want you to interact with me on a few verses here. Look at this one, Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We're all in the same boat here. We all die once, and then we face judgment. When we go to the very end of the story, Revelation 20, the end of the story that God is writing in all of history, this is what it says. It says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death, then, then dead and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Look, my goal here is not to scare any of you. I want to give you reality. And the reality is this, is that we will all give an account at the end of our life for what we have done. You know what? This is, in, this is helpful in giving us wisdom for life in an unjust world because not only does it help us, it helps us to reflect on our own life, to evaluate, man, I'm going to give an account that ought to be a great motivator, but also all the other injustices that you see, they will not prosper forever. Every wrong will be made right. So 
Temporal patience does not eliminate eternal judgment. I would actually say this. The very fact that we don't see judgment take place now is due to God's patience with you and with me. And we see this throughout Scripture. I mean, why, why doesn't God just come and destroy the wicked? And you know what? We will all be there. Because in, in the last section of, of Ecclesiastes that Tanner preached last time, it says there's none righteous and we're all sinners. And we would be right there with the wicked. And our judgment would be death, destruction. We would all be in the same boat. But the fact that God hasn't poured out judgment is he's being patient. He's being kind. Look at these few verses here. Man, I love these. Some of my favorite verses in Romans chapter 2, it says this, Romans 2, Do you suppose, a man, that you will escape the judgment of God, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to, the, to repentance? The very fact that we haven't been judged is because God is kind. Are you grateful for that today? God is being kind. He is being patient he is not wishing, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then we read Hebrews 9 a second ago. Let me finish it out. It says, it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, but then it concludes, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let me ask you a question. We could all point fingers at a ton of injustices in the world. But here's the truth you need to get today. Have you taken care of the wickedness that's going on in your own heart? Have, have you come... To, to think about these truths. You know what? I'm going to give an account for everything that I do in life. And here's the good news. The good news is that God's still being patient with you. And you know what? There's not, it's not just that God's being patient with you. He has provided you an opportunity and hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ who came and offered his life once for all, the greatest injustice he gave, he died to bear the sins of many. That's what Hebrews says, to bear the sins, to bear your sins, to bear my sins, so that if we would come to him, embrace him, trust him, we would be forgiven. So here's the deal. Every injustice will be taken care of. Either you will pay the judgment or you will trust that Jesus stepped in your place and took your judgment. I mean, if you're here today and saying, John, I'm not ready to face judgment. That's scary to me. It doesn't have to be. You can respond today. You're hearing these words. You can respond to the truth of the gospel. You say, John, man, how do I respond? I'll give you four quick things. Admit your need. Man, you can't respond to the gospel until you admit, hey, I'm a sinner, I'm wicked, I need a Savior. You admit your need. How might you do that? Man, just talk to God. That's what we call prayer. You call to God in prayer. God, man, I'm wicked, I'm a sinner. Man, this is me. Man, if I were to face judgment today, man, it wouldn't be pretty. Second, 
Man, ask God to forgive you and help you turn from sin. Admit, and then secondly, man, ask God to forgive you. If you have never asked God, forgive me of my sin, help me, help me turn from sin. That's the second thing. The third thing is this. Trust in Jesus alone to rescue you. There is no other rescue plan. It's it. So you admit, you ask forgiveness, and you trust Jesus to rescue you. And you do that because of the death that he died for you. And the fourth thing is that from this day forward, you follow Jesus, the king of your life, and you do that by faith. You admit, you ask forgiveness, you trust, you embrace, and you follow. That's how you respond to the king of kings. You know what? This passage is is relevant for us because until the judgment happens, we're going to be in this in-between stage where we're going to see the wicked prosper and the righteous happen according to the deeds of the wicked. So how do we respond? We respond by faith, knowing that God one day will make all things right. As it says in Romans 12, 19, he says, leave it to the wrath of God. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Because it's tempting for us to want to lash out and to repay evil for evil. But what does Romans 12 say? Hey, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is how we should respond. And as we wrap up the last two verses of Ecclesiastes, verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night one's eyes see sleep. You see, his wrestling here, man, calls him to lose sleep. He says this, verse 17, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much may man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a man is wise or claims to know it, he cannot find it out. He says, even if you're wise, you, you're not wise. He says, I've seen all the work of God. And I'll just wrap up with this. Man, his epistemology, the way he sought knowledge was by experience. And his experience was telling him, hey, I've seen all the works of God and this is all vanity, the wicked prosper. But let me tell you this, there are some things that his experience couldn't teach him. He couldn't experience creation through his experience and he couldn't see redemption. He needed divine revelation. And this is what you have. You have the word of God that has revealed what God has done from beginning to end and so that you are without excuse. You know, when we go back to Primrose Everdeen and the Hunger Games, she didn't have a chance. There is no way she would have been the last person standing. She was thoughtful. She was sweet. And she was delicate. She would not have survived. But you know what her sister does? Her sister's name is Katniss. And Katniss says, I'll go for her. Don't take my baby sister. Send 
may. You know what Jesus has done? You have no chance to make it past the judgment. And Jesus has said, I'll take it. Put his judgment on me. Will you trust him? Will you embrace him as the greatest treasure of your life? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, we wrestle in life with all of this injustice. God, we need your wisdom. We need your guidance. God, but most of all, we need the salvation and hope that's offered in a relationship with Jesus Christ. God, help us to respond with gratitude, with thankfulness, with great faith and great trust in this treasure. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.